by Josephine Gardner. The Renaissance continued. O oh, divine lineage in mortal guise, what was this new method? Mainly, it was a process of investigating nature with their own senses. Since the 14th century, there had been an, an increasing number of thinkers who warned against blind faith and old authority, be it religious doctrine or the natural philosophy of Aristotle. There were also warnings against the belief that problems can be solved purely by thinking. An exaggerated belief in the importance of reason had been valid all through the Middle Ages. Now, it was said that every investigation of natural phenomena must be depended on observation, experience, and experiment. We call this the empirical method. Which means? It only means that one bases one's knowledge of things on one's own experience and not on dusty parchments or figments of imagination. Empirical science was known in antiquity, but scientific experiments were something quite new. I guess they didn't have any of the technical apparatus we have today. Of course, they had neither calculators nor electronic scales. But what they had was mathematics, mathematics, and they had scales. And it was now above all imperative to express scientific observations in precise mathematical terms. Measure what can be measured, and make measurable what cannot be measured, said the Italian Galileo Galilei, who was also one of the most important scientists of the 17th century. He also said that the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. And all these experiments and measurements made new interactions possible. The first phase was a new scientific method. This made the technical revolution itself possible, and the technical breakthrough opened the way for every invention since. You could say that man had begun to break away from his natural condition. Nature was no longer something man was simply part of. Knowledge is power, said the English philosopher Francis Bacon, thereby underlining the practical value of knowledge. And this is indeed new. Man was seriously starting to intervene in nature and beginning to control it. But not only in a good way? No, this is what I was referring to before I spoke of the good and the evil threads that are constantly intertwined by everything we do. The technical revolution that began in the Renaissance led to the spinning jenny and to unemployment, to medicines and new diseases, to the improved efficiency of agriculture and the impoverishment of the environment, to practical applications such as the washing machine and the refrigerator and pollution and industrial waste. The serious threat to the environment we are facing today has made many people see the technical revolution itself as a perilous maladjustment to natural conditions. It has been pointed out that we have started something we can no longer control. 
more optimistic spirit, think we are still living in the cradle of technology, and that all through science has certainly had its steering troubles. We will gradually learn to control nature without, at the same time, threatening its very existence and thus our own. Which do you think? I think perhaps there may be some truth in both views. In some areas, we must stop interfering with nature, but in others, we can succeed. One thing is certain: there's no way back to the Middle Ages. Ever since the Renaissance. Mankind has been more than just part of creation. Man has begun to intervene in nature and form it after his own image. In truth, what a piece of work is man! We have already been to a moon. What medieval person would have believed such a thing was possible? No, that's for sure. Which brings us to the new world view. All through the Middle Ages. People had stood beneath the sky and gazed up at the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets, but nobody had doubted that the Earth was the center of the universe. No observations had shown any doubt that the Earth remained still, while the heavenly bodies traveled in their orbits around it. We call this the geocentric world picture, or in other words, the belief that everything revolves around the Earth. The Christian belief that God ruled from on high, up above all the heavenly bodies, also contributed to mankind imagining this world picture. I wish it were that simple, but in the 1545, but in 1543, a little book was published entitled "On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres." It was written by a Polish astronomer, Nicholas Copernicus. Who died on the day the book was published? Copernicus claimed that it was not the sun that moved round the Earth; it was vice versa. He thought this was completely possible from the observations of the heavenly bodies that existed. The reason people had always believed that the sun went round the Earth was that the Earth turned on its own axis. He said. He pointed out that all observations of heavenly bodies. Were far easier to understand if one assumed that both the Earth and the other planets circle around the Sun. We call this the helio- heliocentric world picture, which means that everything centers around the Sun. And that world picture was the right one. Not entirely. His main point that the Earth moves around the Sun is, of course, correct. But he claimed that the sun was the center of the universe. Today we know that the sun is only one of the infinite numbers of stars, and that all the stars around us make up only one of many billions of galaxies. Copernicus also believed that the Earth and the other planets moved in circular orbits around the sun. Don't they? No. He had nothing on which to base his belief on the in the circular orbits, other than the ancient ideas that heavenly bodies were round and moved in circles simply because they were heavenly. Since the time of Plato, the sphere and the circle have been considered the most perfect geometrical figures. 
but in the early 1600s, the German astronomer Johannes Kepler presented the results of comprehensive observations, which showed that the planets move in an elliptical or oval orbits with the sun at one focus. He also pointed out that the speed of a planet is greatest when it is closest to the sun. That the farther planets orbit it's away from the sun, the slower it moves. Not until Kepler's time was it actually stated that the Earth was a physical planet just like other planets. Kepler also emphasized that the same physical laws apply supply apply everywhere throughout the universe. But how could he know that? Because he had investigated the movements of the planets with his own senses instead of blindly trusting ancient superstitions. Galileo Galilei, who was a roughly contemporary with Kepler, also used a telescope to observe the heavenly bodies. He studied the moon's craters and said that the moon had mountains and valleys similar to those on Earth. Moreover, he discovered that the planet Jupiter had four moons, so the Earth was not alone in having a moon. But the greatest significance of Galileo was that he first formulated the so-called law of inertia, and that is Galileo formulated it thus: a body remains in the state which it is in, at rest or in motion. As long as no external force compels it to change its state, if you say so. But this was a significant observation, since antiquity, one of the central arguments against the Earth moving round its own axis was that the Earth would then move so quickly that a stone hurled straight into the air would fall yards away from the spot it was hurled from. So why doesn't it? If you're sitting in a train and you drop an apple, it doesn't fall backward because the train is moving; it falls straight down. That is because of the law of inertia. The apple retains exactly the same speed it had before you dropped it. I think I understand. Now, in Galileo's time, there were no trains, but if you roll a ball along the ground and suddenly let go. It goes on rolling because it retains its speed after you let go, but it will eventually stop if the room is long enough. That's because other forces slow it down. First, the floor, especially if it's a rough wooden floor. Then the force of gravity will sooner or later bring it to a halt. But wait, I'll show you something. Arbuto Knox got up and went over to the old desk. He took something out of one of his drawers. When he returned to his place, he put it on the ta- coffee table. It was just a wooden board, a few millimeters thick at one end and thin on the other. Beside the board, which almost covered the whole table, he laid a green marble. This is called an inclined plane, he said. What do you think will happen if I let go of the marble up here, where the plane is thickest? Sophie sighed resignedly. I bet you ten crowns it rolls down the table and ends up on the floor. Let's see. 
Alberto let go of the marble and it behaved exactly how Sophie had said. It rolled onto the table, over the tabletop, hit the floor with a little thud, and finally bumped into the wall. Impressive, said Sophie. Yes, wasn't it? This was the kind of experiment Galileo did, you see. Was he really that stupid? Patience. He wanted to investigate things with all his senses. So we only have just begun. Tell me first why the marble rolled down the inclined plane. It began to roll because it was heavy. All right. And what is weight actually, child? That's a silly question. It's not a silly question if you can't answer it. Why did the marble roll onto the floor? Because of gravity. Exactly. Or gravitation, as we also say. Weight has something to do with gravity. That was a force that set the marble in motion. Mm-hmm.